Part three, chapter nineteen of the Tree of Heaven by Mason Clare. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Expatriate in Bangor, Maine. Part three, Victory, chapter nineteen. They did not go down to Morph the first week in August for the shooting. Neither did Lawrence Stephen go to Ireland on Monday the third at the moment when he should have been receiving the congratulations of the dublin nationalists after his impassioned appeal for militant consolidation mr redmond and mr edward carson were shaking hands dramatically in the house of commons stephen's sublime opportunity the civil war had been snatched from him by the unforeseen and there was no chance of nicky and veronica going to belgium and france and germany for their honeymoon for within nine days of francis's day germany had declared war on france and russia and was marching over the belgian frontier on her way to paris francis aroused at last to realization of the affairs of nations asked like several million women what does it mean and anthony like several million men answered it means armageddon like several million people they both thought he was saying something as original as it was impressive something clear and final and descriptive armageddon stolid unimaginative people went about saying it to each other the sound of the word thrilled them intoxicated them gave them an awful feeling that was at the same time in some odd way agreeable it stirred them with a solemn and sombre passion they said armageddon it means armageddon yet nobody knew and nobody asked or thought of asking what armageddon meant shall we come into it said francis she was thinking of the royal navy turning out to the last destroyer to save england from invasion of the british army most superfluously prepared to defend england from the invader who after all could not invade of indian troops pouring into england if the worst came to the worst she had the healthy british mind that refuses and always has refused to acknowledge the possibility of disaster yet she asked continually would england be drawn in she was thankful that none of her sons had gone into the army or the navy whoever else was in they would be out of it at first anthony said no of course england wouldn't be drawn in then on the morning of england's ultimatum the closing of the stock exchange and the banks made him thoughtful and he admitted that it looked as if england might be drawn in after all the long day without any business for him and nicholas disturbed him there was a nasty hovering smell of ruin in the air but there was no panic the closing of the banks was only a wise precaution against panic and by evening as the tremendous significance of the ultimatum sank into him he said definitively that england would not be drawn in then drayton whom they had not seen for months since he had had his promotion telephoned to dorothy to come and dine with him at his club in dover street anthony missed altogether the significance of that he had actually made for himself an after-dinner piece in which coffee could be drunk and cigarettes smoked as if nothing were happening in europe england he said will not be drawn in because her ultimatum will stop the war there won't be any armageddon oh won't there said michael and i can tell you there won't be much left of us after it's over he had been in germany and he knew he carried himself with a sort of stern haughtiness as one who knew better than any of them and yet his words conveyed no picture to his brain 
no definite image of anything at all but in nicholas's brain images gathered fast one after another they thickened clear vivid images with hard outlines they came slowly but with order and precision while the others talked he had been silent and very grave some of us will be left he said but it'll take us all our time anthony looked thoughtfully at nicholas a sudden wave of realization beat up against his consciousness and receded well he said we shall know at midnight an immense restlessness came over them at a quarter past eight dorothy telephoned from her club in grafton street frank had had to leave her suddenly somebody had sent for him and if they wanted to see the sight of their lives they were to come into town at once st james's was packed with people from whitehall to buckingham palace it was like nothing on earth and they mustn't miss it she'd wait for them in grafton street till a quarter to nine but not a minute later nicky got out his big four-seater morse car they packed themselves into it all six of them somehow and he drove them into london they had a sense of doing something strange and memorable and historic dorothy picked up at her club showed nothing but a pleasurable excitement she gave no further information about frank he had had to go off and see somebody what did he think he thought what he had always thought only he wouldn't talk about it dorothy was not inclined to talk about it either the morse was caught in a line blocked at the bottom of albemarle street by two streams of cars mixed with two streams of foot passengers that poured steadily from piccadilly into st james's street michael and dorothy got out and walked nicholas gave up his place to anthony and followed with veronica their restlessness had been part of the immense restlessness of the crowd they were drawn as the crowd was drawn they went as the crowd went up and down restlessly from trafalgar square and whitehall to buckingham palace from buckingham palace to whitehall and trafalgar square they drifted down parliament street to westminster and back again an hour ago the drifting nebulous crowd had split torn asunder between two attractions its two masses had wheeled away one to the east and the other to the west they had gathered themselves together one at each pole of the space it now traversed the great meeting in trafalgar square balanced the multitude that had gravitated towards buckingham palace to see the king and queen come out on their balcony and show themselves to their people and as the edges of the two masses gave way each broke and scattered and was mixed again with the other like a flood confined and shaken it surged and was driven back and surged again from whitehall to buckingham palace from buckingham palace to whitehall it looked for an outlet in the narrow channels of the side streets or spread itself over the flats of the green park only to return restlessly upon itself sucked back by the main current in the mall it was as if half london had met there for bank holiday part of this crowd was drunk it was orgiastic it made strange fierce noises like the noises of one enormous mystically excited beast here and there men and women with inflamed and drunken faces reeled in each other's arms they wore pink paper feathers in their hats some only half intoxicated flicked at each other with long streamers of pink and white paper carried like scourges on small sticks these were the inspired but the great body of the crowd was sober it went decorously in a long procession 
young men with their sweethearts friends brothers and sisters husbands and wives fathers and mothers with their children none or very few went alone that night it was an endless procession of faces grave and thoughtful faces uninterested respectable faces faces of unmoved integrity excited faces dreaming wondering bewildered faces faces merely curious or curiously exalted slightly ecstatic open-mouthed fascinated by each other and by the movements and the lights laughing frivolous faces and faces utterly vacant and unseeing on every other breast there was a small union jack pinned every other hand held and waggled a union jack the union jack flew from the engine of every other automobile in twelve hours out of nowhere thousands and thousands of flags sprang magically into being as if for years london had been preparing for this day and in and out of this crowd the train of automobiles with their flags dashed up and down the mall for hours appearing and disappearing intoxicated youths with inflamed faces in full evening dress squatted on the roofs of taxicabs or rode astride on the engines of their cars waving flags all this movement drunken orgiastic somnambulistic mysteriously restless streamed up and down between two solemn and processional lines of lights two solemn and processional lines of trees lines that stretched straight from whitehall to buckingham palace in a recurrent pattern of trees and lamps dark trees twilit trees a lamp and a tree shining with a metallic unnatural green and at the end of the avenue gilded gates and a golden white facade the crowd was drifting now towards the palace michael and dorothea nicholas and veronica went with it in this eternal perambulation they met people that they knew stephen and vera mitchell monier owen uncle maury and his sisters anthony looking rather solemn drove past them in his car it was like impossible grotesque encounters in a dream outside the palace the crowd moved up and down without rest it drifted and returned it circled round and round the fountain in the open spaces the intoxicated motor-cars and taxicabs darted and tore with the folly of moths and the fury of destroyers they stung the air with their hooting flags intoxicated flags still hung from their engines they came flying drunkenly out of the dark like a trumpeting swarm of enormous insects irresistibly incessantly drawn to the lights of the palace hypnotized by the golden-white facade suddenly michael's soul revolted if this demented herd of swine is a great people going into a great war god help us beasts it's not as if their bloated skins were likely to be punctured he called back over his shoulders to the others let's get out of this if we don't i shall be sick he took dorothy by her arm and shouldered his way out the water had ceased playing in the fountain nicholas and veronica stood by the fountain the water in the basin was green like foul sea-water the jetsam of the crowd floated there a small child leaned over the edge of the basin and fished for union jacks in the filthy pool its young mother held it safe by the tilted edge of its petticoats she looked up at them and smiled they smiled back again and turned away it was quiet on the south side by the barracks small sober groups of twos and threes strolled there or stood with their faces pressed close against the railings peering into the barrack-yard motionless earnest and attentive they stared at the men in khaki moving about on the other side of the railings 
they were silent fascinated by the men in khaki standing safe behind the railing they stared at them with an awful sombre curiosity and the men in khaki stared back proud self-conscious as men who know that the hour is great and that it is their hour nicky veronica said i wish michael wouldn't say things like that he's dead right ronny that isn't the way to take it getting drunk and excited and rushing about making silly asses of themselves they are rather swine you know yes but they're pathetic can't you see how pathetic they are nicky i believe i love the swine even the poor drunken ones with the pink paper feathers just because they're english because awful things are going to happen to them and they don't know it they're english you think god's made us all like that he hasn't they found anthony in the mall driving up and down looking for them he had picked up dorothy and aunt emmeline and uncle morrie we're going down to the mansion house he said to hear the proclamation will you come but vera and nicholas were tired of crowds even of historic crowds anthony drove off with his carload and they went home i never saw daddy so excited nicky said but anthony was not excited he had never felt calmer or cooler in his life he returned some time after midnight by that time it had sunk into him germany had defied the ultimatum and england had declared war on germany he said it was only what was to be foreseen he had known all the time that it would happen really the tension of the day of the ultimatum had this peculiar psychological effect that all over england people who had declared up to the last minute that there would be no war were saying the same thing as anthony and believing it michael was disgusted with the event that had put an end to the irish revolution it was in this form that he conceived his first grudge against the war this emotion of his was like some empty space of horror opened up between him and nicholas nicky being the only one of his family who was as yet aware of its existence for the next three days nicholas very serious and earnest shut himself up in his workshop at the bottom of the orchard and laboured there putting the last touches to the final perfect authoritative form of the moving fortress the joint creation of his brain and drayton's the only experiment that had survived the repeated onslaughts of the major's criticism the new model was three times the size of the lost original it was less like a battleship and more like a racing car and a destroyer it was his and drayton's last word on the subject of armaments it was going to the war office this time addressed to the right person and accompanied by all sorts of protective introductions and drayton blasting its way before it with his new explosive in those three days nick found an immense distraction in his moving fortress it also served to blind his family to his real intentions he knew that his real intentions could not be kept from them very long meanwhile the idea that he was working on something made them happy when francis saw him in his overalls she smiled and said nicky's got his job anyhow john came and looked at him through the window of the workshop and laughed good old nicky he said doing his bit in those three days john went about with an air of agreeable excitement or you came upon him sitting in solitary places like the dining-room lost in happy thought michael said of him that he was unctuous he exuded a secret joy and satisfaction john had acquired a sudden remarkable maturity he shone on each member of his family with benevolence and affection as if he were its protector and consoler 
and about to confer on it some tremendous benefit look at dandon michael said the bloodthirsty little brute he's positively enjoying the war you might leave me alone said dandon i shan't have it to enjoy for long he was one of those who believed that the war would be over in four months michael pledged to secrecy came and looked at the moving fortress he was interested and intelligent he admired that efficiency of nicky's that was so unlike his own yet he wondered after all was it so unlike he too was aiming at an art as clean and hard and powerful as nicky's as naked of all blazonry and decoration an art which would attain its objective by the simplest most perfect adjustment of means to ends and anthony was proud of that hidden wonder locked behind the door of the workshop in the orchard he realized that his son nicholas had taken part in a great and important thing he was prouder of nicholas than he had been of michael and michael knew it nicky's brains could be used for the service of his country but michael's anthony said to himself that there wasn't any sense any sense that he could endure to contemplate in which michael's brains could be of any use to his country when anthony thought of the mobilization of his family for national service michael and michael's brains were a problem that he put behind him for the present and refused to contemplate there would be time enough for michael later anthony was perfectly well aware of his own one talent the talent which had made harrison and harrison the biggest timber importing firm in england if there was one thing he understood it was organization if there was one thing he could not tolerate it was waste of good material the folly of forcing men and women into places they were not fit for he had let his eldest son slip out of the business without a pang or with hardly any pang he had only taken nicholas into it as an experiment it was on john that he relied to inherit it and carry it farther as a man of business he approved of the advertised formula business as usual he understood it to mean that the duty which england expected every man to do was to stay in the place he was most fitted for and to go where he was most wanted nothing but muddle and disaster could follow any departure from this rule it was fitting that francis and veronica should do red cross work it was fitting that dorothy should help to organize the relief of the belgian refugees it was fitting that john should stay at home and carry on the business and that he anthony should enlist when he had settled john into his place it was above all fitting that nicky should devote himself to the invention and manufacture of armaments he could not conceive anything more wantonly and scandalously wasteful than a system that could make any other use of nicky's brains he thanked goodness that with a european war upon us such a system if it existed would not be allowed to live a day as for michael it might be fitting later very much later perhaps if michael wanted to volunteer for the army then and if it were necessary he would have no right to stop him but it would not be necessary england was going to win this war on the sea and not on land michael was practically safe and behind francis's smile and john's laughter and michael's admiration and anthony's pride there was the thought whatever happens nicky will be safe and the model of the moving fortress was packed up veronica and nicky packed it and it was sent under high protection to the war office and nicky unlocked the door of his workshop and rested restlessly from his labor and there was a call for recruits and for still more recruits westminster bridge became a highway for regiments marching to battle the streets were parade grounds for squad after squad of volunteers in civilian clothes self-conscious and abashed under the eyes of the men in khaki 
and michael said this is the end of all the arts artists will not be allowed to exist except as agents for the recruiting sergeant we're dished that was the second grudge he had against the war it killed the arts in the very hour of their renaissance eccentricities by morton ellis with illustrations by austin mitchell in the new poems of michael harrison with illustrations by austin mitchell were to have come out in september though it was not conceivable that they should come out at the first rumour of the ultimatum michael and ellis had given themselves up for lost liege fell and namur was falling and the call went on for recruits and for still more recruits and nicky in five seconds had destroyed his mother's illusions and the whole fabric of his father's plans it was one evening when they were in the drawing-room sitting up after veronica had gone to bed i hope you won't mind father he said but i'm going to enlist to-morrow he did not look at his father's face he looked at his mother's she was sitting opposite him on the couch beside dorothy john balanced himself on the head of the couch with his arm round his mother's shoulder every now and then he stooped down and rubbed his cheek thoughtfully against her hair a slight tremor shook her sensitive betraying upper lip and then she looked back at nicholas and smiled dorothy set her mouth hard unsmiling anthony had said nothing he stared before him at michael's foot thrust out and tilted by the crossing of his knees michael's foot with its long arched instep fascinated anthony he seemed to be thinking if i look at it long enough i may forget what nicky has said i hope you won't mind father but i'm enlisting too john's voice was a light high echo of nicky's with a great effort anthony roused himself from his contemplation of michael's foot i can't see that my minding or not minding has anything to do with it he brought his words out slowly and with separate efforts as if they weighed heavily on his tongue we've got to consider what's best for the country all round and i doubt if either of you is called upon to go some of us have got to go said nicky quite so but i don't think it ought to be you nicky or john either i suppose said michael you mean it ought to be me i don't mean anything of the sort one out of four is enough one out of four well then that only leaves me to fight said dorothy i wasn't thinking of you michael or of dorothy they all looked at him where he sat upright and noble in his chair and most absurdly young dorothy said under her breath oh you darling daddy you won't be allowed to go anyhow said john to his father you needn't think it why not well he hadn't the heart to say because you're too old nicky's brains will be more used to the country than my old carcass nicky thought you're the very last of us that can be spared but he couldn't say it the thing was so obvious all he said was it's out of the question you're going old nicky's out of the question if you like said john he's going to be married he ought to be thinking of his wife and children of course he ought said anthony whoever goes first it isn't nicky you ought to think of mummy daddy ducky and you ought to think of us said dorothy i said john haven't got anybody to think of i'm not going to be married and i haven't any children i haven't got a wife and children yet said nicky you've got veronica you ought to think of her i am thinking of her you don't suppose veronica'd stop me if i wanted to go why she wouldn't look at me if i didn't want to go suddenly he remembered michael i mean he said after my saying that i was going their eyes met 
Michaels flickered. He knew that Nicky was thinking of him. Then Ronnie knows, said Frances. Of course she knows. You aren't going to try to stop me, mother. No, she said, I'm not going to try to stop you. This time. She thought, if I hadn't stopped him seven years ago, he would be safe now, with the army in India. One by one they got up and said good-night to each other. But Nicholas came to Michael in his room. He said to him, I say, Mick, don't you worry about not enlisting, at any rate, not yet. Don't worry about Don and Daddy. They won't take Don, because he's got a mitral murmur in his heart that he doesn't know about. He's going to be jolly well sold, poor chap. And they won't take the governor, because he's too old. Though the dear old thing thinks he can bluff them into it, because he doesn't look it. And look here, don't worry about me. As far as I'm concerned, the war's a blessing in disguise. I always wanted to go into the army. You know how I loathed it when they went and stopped me. Now I'm going in and nobody, not even mother, really wants to keep me out. Soon they'll all be as pleased as Punch about it. And I sort of know how you feel about the war. You don't want to stick bayonets into German tummies just because they're so large and oogy. You'd think of that first and all the time and afterwards. And I shan't think of it at all. Besides, you disapprove of the war for all sorts of reasons that I can't get hold of. But it's like this. You couldn't respect yourself if you went into it. And I couldn't respect myself if I stayed out. I wonder, Michael said, if you really see it. Of course I see it. That's the worst of you clever writing chaps. You seem to think nobody can ever see anything except yourselves. When he had left him, Michael thought, I wonder if he really does see, or if he made it all up. They had not said to each other all that they had really meant. Of Nicky's many words, there were only two that he remembered vividly, not yet. Again, he felt the horror of the great empty space opened up between him and Nicky, deep and still and soundless, but for the two words, not yet. End of Part 3, Chapter 19 Recording by Expatriate in Bangor, Maine